0: This episode is brought to you by Jeff Bramus, recycling real estate in Bellingham since 2001. Jeff Bramus: real estate for real people. This episode is brought to you by Pickford Film Center, downtown Bellingham's only independent movie theater and the home of sci-fi matinees, featuring the best and worst sci-fi movies from the 20th century and beyond. This season's sci-fi matinee theme is robots, including Tobor the Great, The Invisible Boy, Blade Runner, Westworld, and Future World. Pickford Film Center is located at 1318 Bay Street in Bellingham. But you already know that. Okay, it says here, maybe add space sounds in the background, like laser gun style.
1: Pew, 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 pew,
0: How's that? For more information and showtimes, you can visit pickfordfilmcenter.org. Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm David Pender Lofgren. You know, I was talking with local musician and poet, Dave Donahue, the other day, and he mentioned something to me about this show that I hadn't realized. He referred to the show as an archive, like a public record of the stories of our guests. It's funny because when I was preparing to interview Brent Cole for episode two, I spent a bunch of time trying to find old issues of What's Up, and I had the thought, God, I hope someone's been holding on to these things. They tell the stories of the last 20 years of Bellingham music in a way that no other archive does. And I don't mean to compare Little City Big Sound to What's Up. What Brent has done for this community is really unheard of for a scene of our size, particularly just continuing to generate local coverage for two decades. And frankly, we do different things. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm generally more interested in the people behind the music than the music itself. Anyway, when I walked away from that conversation with Dave, I started thinking about this archive that we're building one interview at a time, and it made me feel okay about how much time we put into this thing. Between the interview prep, the studio time, the many rounds of editing, and the final mixing and syndication, about 15 hours of work goes into each episode. But when I think about how we recorded an interview with Aaron Gill before the Firefly had even poured its first pint, or the fact that at the end of our interview with Holly Huffman, when I asked her what's next, she casually mentioned thinking about running for office. And now, as of this recording, she is the clear frontrunner in her race for city council. These conversations mean a lot in the moment, but they mean even more over time. I have had a bunch of conversations with folks who have said things like, I've been meaning to contribute, but I just keep forgetting. And that's cool, I get it. But this time, be different. Take the moment, pause the episode, go to our Patreon page, and become a sustaining supporter of this show. That's patreon.com slash littlecitybigsound, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash littlecitybigsound and decide how much this archive of our music community's history is worth to you. And a million thank yous to our current patrons, Diana, Doug, Kaylee, Aaron, and Kendra. Your support means the world to us. Okay, now on with the show. This month's guest is best known as the band leader and trumpeteer of the Hot House Jazz Band. When he's not serenading our scene with his characteristic muted trumpet sounds, Pace Rubideau can be found curating Prohibition-era soirees with the sole goal of making the world around him a more magical place to inhabit. I invited Pace into the studio after hearing that Hothouse Jazz Band was planning on closing up shop, but only after a final performance. And not just your typical It's Our Last Show throwdown. No, Hothouse went out in style by traveling all the way to Walla Walla, to perform for a group of 190 inmates at the Washington State Penitentiary. That's right, don't let Pace's mild manner fool you. He's almost always planning his next big move. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Pace Rubideau, welcome.
2: Good to be here, thanks for having me.
0: If the bits and pieces of information that I have discovered while preparing for this interview are any indication, you have led a fairly remarkable life. I want to try and get to as much of that as we can, but I want to start in the present. You formed the Hothouse Jazz Band in April of 2017, and this is like a 10 to 12-piece traditional jazz band. You guys play jazz from the 20s and 30s, sort of like the pre-war era, is that what you would call it? Correct, Prohibition era. Right, and that... And played a variety of shows from standard local venue gigs to festivals like speakeasy special events about two weeks prior to the recording of this interview. You played your final show and you played that to 190 inmates at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Correct. That's a really interesting choice for
2: a final show. Where did the idea to play at a prison come from? Well, it started about five years ago when I watched the movie Walk the Line. And it just uh, happened to be drinking a bottle of wine with that movie. So it kind of just got me into, you know, a good atmosphere to just enjoy it. And after the movie, I just kind of had an idea. Not all of my ideas are fueled by by alcohol, but this particular one was was just bringing a similar experience to prisons but more from the perspective of a traditional jazz band playing that music for the inmates. And I sent out a variety of emails to maximum security, minimum security, all the bases. I did that that evening after I had finished watching the movie and had a bottle of wine. So, unsurprisingly, perhaps I did not get that many responses back. I got a few whose interest was piqued, but nothing ever manifested. But the idea never left me. It kind of stayed with me all these years, and like many things didn't really transpire until I arrived in Bellingham.
0: I'm impressed that you like got the idea the night that you were watching the movie and sent the emails out that
2: night? <laughs> Again, maybe not a good approach. I should have probably waited till the next day when I was a little bit more collected and some may say sober, but it just seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: How how did this uh this part of the story unfold then? Like did you decide you're going to send a bunch more emails and see what could happen? Yeah, Hot
2: uh, Hothouse was sort of the vehicle for all these amazing things that were accomplished with the support of our community, which you know I hold above everything else. It's really kind of helped us along the way and made all these dreams come to fruition, and that was just a way I thought that it could end on a high note. We're going to part ways as a band and kind of see this thing through and feel like it got to a certain point where we had done what we set out to do. It should be something monumental together. And that was really the first time we ever were able to hang out as a band because with 10 people, it's hard enough to get everybody's schedules online for a gig, let alone practice, let alone, you know, just being able to hang out and not think about the gig or what's next, but just enjoy each other's company. And so that was a way that we could all do that just by being on the road for almost six hours.
0: Right. So you had to load the whole band into a vehicle and drive from here to Walla Walla, which is a really long drive.
2: Yeah, it's a very beautiful drive. I was kind of impressed at the landscape out there. I'd never really been to Eastern Washington much, but definitely a long drive and very, very hot as well.
0: Yeah. Can you talk more about just
2: like the logistics of making this thing happen? First and foremost, we had to submit a PDF of every single piece of equipment we were bringing to the facility down to Guitar Picks. This was about six pages long.
0: This is because you're going into a prison, right? So because they want to know like prison. exactly what items you're going in with. So presumably they can count them on the way out too or?
2: And just uh, for, for their own, our own safety and security and just making sure that, you know, if someone used a mouthpiece as a shank that it would not come back to us or anything like that. And I mean just, yeah, the it was it was a lot of logistics. Can you talk about
0: like what you imagined the experience would be like? Before you got, like,
2: did you have some sense of what you thought you're walking into? And for me, and I think for a lot of other people in the band, one of the, the most lasting impressions was actually entering to this place that we've been talking about in emails and just looking at pictures online. There's little to no evidence of what this place looks like inside online because they don't allow pictures. The prison supplied a few pictures afterwards. Uh, that they had taken, but they cannot show the exterior grounds. They can't show any of the inmates. I don't know if that's because it will prevent people from, you know, hatching an escape plan. But this this prison, anybody can go to the Wikipedia page for Washington State Penitentiary and see the notable offenders that they have. But the Barefoot Bandits, which a lot of people are excited about, I didn't really know who that was, but I I heard stories and it seems like a pretty uh, a person of notoriety. But it's a prison of 2,200 inmates. All of them are male. So one of our initial concerns, one of my concerns, was the uh, the honeys, which are the three ladies at front, are banned. Right. Uh, just pretty much their safety, and that was paramount above everything else. But it's not often that you there's a destination and you can't really, you know, with the internet at our fingertips, be like, cool, I want to see what the layout is and sort of where we'll set up and just kind of get a bird's eye view of this thing. That was not possible at all. So we didn't know we were walking into. Personally, I just imagined that with all the red tape we had to go through to make this thing happen, it would be kind of uh, – I didn't think it would be dangerous. I just suspected that they were being cautious and that there was a reason for that. Um, that became especially true when one of the security checkpoints we went through, which there were three of them all together and then five gates we had to walk through. but last security checkpoint before we actually entered the facility was when the guard put a UV stamp on our hand and said that if anything happens, you know, this is the only way we're going to know that you're not one of the inmates, which seemed strange at the time considering that we were all dressed to the nines. <laughs> but, you know, I get it. And also we had to sign a waiver saying that if any of us were taken hostage that we had to abide by Washington's uh, rule on terrorist and pretty much that we were just left to ourselves that it just was very very real once we had arrived and drove through Walla Walla and remarked at the beautiful countryside and all the varying landscape and just had time to talk to each other and learn about each other in this five plus hours to actually arriving at the facility and walking in and just being encountered with guns and guards and scanners and lockers to put all our things in and then walking into a buzzing room, you know, tinted windows, other guards coming up, other things we had to go through and visitor badges that we were issued that had a strip on them that was the only way we could get through their little turnstile into the facility. And walking in the facility, that's kind of when it hit me, the idea of knowing that all the research I had done about this place, knowing about the inmates that were there, knowing the population. And how large it was and how historic it was because it was built in 1886 three years before statehood the absolute silence nothing happening just huge huge property countless buildings and yards and security fencing and everything and just absolute stillness because everybody was in their cell or being you know regulated in classrooms or what have you and then walking from one gate to the next all of us gathered at the gate then being buzzed into the next one we were all together as a group And then just, yeah, walking through that facility until we finally arrived into the gymnasium, which was our green room, and which was, thank God, air-conditioned, because it was about 10 degrees hotter out there than it is in Bellingham, so it was in the 90s that day. Wow. And again, going back to the fact that we were dressed nice for the occasion, it was a bit hot. As a free man, it seems weird to complain, but good God, it was so hot, and we were just right in the middle of the sun against this white wall uh, of the concrete yard. Because among other things, they did not have a canopy or anything like that. So we just, we set up out there and got to work.
0: It strikes me that, um, you know, you have played a wide variety of stages and a wide variety of scenarios. And, you know, as a musician, you sort of show up to different shows and like the energy is different, right? It feels, sometimes it's like a, Big show. You can feel there's like tension amongst the band members, you know, or you, you sort of feel the anticipatory energy. What does it feel like to be getting ready to play for a group of prisoners? Like, what is the what is the group energy feel like? What does the group dynamic feel like?
2: Uh, I think many of us were still worried about the honeys and just making sure that everything was going to be okay, because you know they're they're badass independent women who can take care of themselves, but also again. 2,200 male inmate. We didn't know how many inmates were going to come to this show. So that was just a concern of mine and of the collective. And when we went out into the yard, it was, uh, we had three security guards sort of surrounding the makeshift stage that we had set up. There were two other security guards roving, two or three. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but I definitely remember the fact of they told me that there were three tower snipers in case anything went down. So that kind of also made it very real that we were not at your average club.
0: Anyway. <laughs> yeah, having I mean snipers is not usually part of the
2: hospitality. No. And then they all radioed to, to their colleagues that everything was set, everybody was in place, and we could start playing. And I remember that part because it was just three dudes that just came starting down from on high, like, you know, a, a, maybe 100 yards I just saw these three dudes come in in their standard prison issue, which was just a white t shirt and white shorts. And I was like, cool, there's three people here. We drove six hours. It's going to be great. There's more band members and audience. It's all going to work out fine. Nobody's going to be mad. <laughs> and it was just one guy who just did from Cat Calls in the Distance, was just so excited to be there and like just trotting a little bit uh, while everybody kept an eye on him. And we went back to playing and doing our little sound check ditty. And then it was just a sea of white shorts and white shirts, which turned out to be 190 of them, but at that point it looked like a 1,000 because we had been playing in to nobody in this huge, gigantic recreational yard on this facility out in the middle of the desert almost, it seemed like. And then they just started coming in, and they all just sat down in the grass or were somewhere standing up, but it was the most docile and attentive and appreciative crowd, honestly, that I think I've ever played for. And... It was a very surreal experience, and it just got more surreal and more beautiful by the time, as, as the music went on, for an hour and 15-minute set that we played. And uh, they treated the honeys with respect when they came out. Actually, the only person that got any sort of catcalling was uh, Pete Irving. He had uh, he was playing, joining us on guitar for this adventure. Right, Pete Irving from Hot Damn Scandal. You got it. And you know, Pete has a, a lovely mustache that he's been working on. And uh, the the mustache and facial hair and beards are a point of respect for the for the inmates because they don't have the tools to manicure anything like that. It's the ones that have these really outrageous and you know beautiful locks and just like really manicured beards and everything are just they're kind of celebrities. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I do know that they Pete was their favorite, and they kept on <laughs> yelling out to him like and just. <laughs> <laughs> like never saying anything about you know anybody else, you know, on a, on a personal basis. Just he was the one that was that was recognized. But every every song that we played, they just it was thunderous applause, and they loved every minute of it. And then when we announced it was the last song, they all got to their feet and clapped through the end. And we had only uh, had two people that came up because we didn't know if we were going to do any sort of question and answer thing. It would have been nice, but also. Even at that point, we didn't know what kind of environment it was, whether that was all just a, a ruse and they were just trying to get up to us to hurt us or anything. You know, We didn't really feel threatened, but also we had all this previous paperwork to fill out before entering this place and being told if things go down, you know, you go into the gym, you shut the door behind you, the prisoners can't get in there, it's a safe place. But it was just one guy that came up and was really excited and only wanted to do talk to talk to Pete about his mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and then another guy that came up and told us about a a radio show on Walla Walla that played old blues from time to time, but he thinks that they had stopped doing it. But outside of that, they were, they were a really incredible audience and it was a really incredible therapeutic experience. Wow. We start breaking down our equipment and they release inmates to, you know, not really a file back, but just sort of a general herding them back towards the place where they had come from. And I took a minute to kind of take the mutes out of my horn and step to the side and serenade them with what a wonderful world as they were going back to their cells and it bounced off the buildings and came back to me and it was, yeah, seemed to kind of close the experience for me personally.
0: the discussion like
2: in the band after that everybody I think was just happy that it had gone so well that not only was nobody hurt or you know threatened or shown disrespect that it was again one of the most attentive and appreciative crowds we had played for and even the honeys halfway through the set started to get a little bit more comfortable and just engage the the inmates a little bit and just kind of make it more of a interactive performance instead of just playing to this wall of prisoners, it started to become more like a, a concert. Hmm. But there was no escaping the fact that it was no ordinary concert. What is it like to leave a prison? That is a, a very interesting and appropriate question because you didn't really think about that until after the experience and on our way back, all the security gates were opened. Again, nobody out there, but we didn't have to go through the, you know, gather to this point, open the gate. Everybody gathered to this point, open the next gate. They're all just open. We're on our way back and, you know, the reverse going through security was, you know, not not as, uh, as extreme as coming in. And we gathered everything out of our personal lockers, like our keys and wallets and stuff. All we... We're told and all we needed on us to get in was just our ID and our instruments. And yeah, then we gathered everything up, said thanks to all the security guards for looking after us, gave everybody high fives and, you know, handshakes. I'm a, a person who likes to hug people, but uh, I, I didn't do that on this particular occasion. I really wanted to hug this guard. Aaron, who had kind of looked after us all the whole time, was just really, uh, you know, sweet and thoughtful and just... Telling us all the time how much he appreciated us being there. And, but then we all just, uh, as a group, went outside together and this, the sun was setting. I mean, it was really a storybook. And I think it was Savi who remarked just how incredible it is to what we just did, but just to leave this place and walk out the door and go on with our lives. And that was your last gig. That was our last gig. Yeah. It's uh, after going through something like that, I just. I mean, we've all become friends through this thing, and we've everybody's networked and been introduced to music that maybe they didn't know about before, and become you know better musicians and and a close knit group of people who have gone through some really incredible things. And it's it's a group of really kind and talented people. But I don't really see any reason to do another hot house show. Like, why why try to, to better what happened with our last one? And it's a community oriented group. I mean, these people are part of the community and the scene loves them. So it's not like this band just ended and then that's it. It's like we just played a few last songs and then you see all these people in your neighborhood still. So everything's fine. Mm. I, I don't know if I'm going to be successful in this, uh,
0: in my organization of this interview, but my hope is we can sort of like keep jumping back in. Uh, in time and then going forward a little ways and then like jumping further back and going forward i'll probably cut that part out
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you like this could be a good segue <laughs> to, uh, i brought you something as a as a gift if you're prepared for that <laughs> what <laughs> well you know it's just i really appreciate you inviting me to be here and i'm in really incredible company of all the of all the other people you've interviewed i to bring you something.
0: Pace is opening a brown bag right now.
2: Do you remember the first time we met? I,
0: I do remember the first time we met. Oh my god. What's this? Pace is handing me a bottle of Evan Williams. Of fine Kentucky bourbon. <laughs> and the joint. Memories. Oh, Pace.
2: Okay, so. Um, and the person who actually does all the work on this <laughs> show. Here you go, Andy.
0: It's a can of ice cold modello.
2: I don't know what you like, but it's free beer, so. That's fantastic.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay, so now, um, that's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, gosh. You threw me off my game. That's perfect. Sweet. So the first time that we met each other, um, we were, I was hosting a speakeasy party in my basement for my, I think it was for my wife's birthday Mm -hmm. and I had hired, I wanted to hire a jazz band to play, uh, Prohibition era jazz. And it turned out that no one in town actually did that (laughs) at the time. Yeah. And so I hired Andy Ingram to like put a band together and mm-hmm. he somehow found you and you were the first person that showed up like to the party Yeah, with a joint and a bottle of of whiskey. And if I remember correctly, dressed to the nines and with like a playlist. And you're like, I can also DJ the moments that the band isn't playing. I've got a playlist on my iPod here of, of hot jazz. Yeah.
2: That was incredible. Just to, in case. How long had you been in town at that point? Um, I think I was pretty freshly arrived. I mean, things started happening as soon as I got here. I arrived on November 1st, 2015. And the first place I lived was actually, I was a neighbor of Craig Jewel, your your last interviewee. Yeah, and I only knew three people when I moved to town. They were three instrumental people in the scene. And that was Thomas Deacon and Jenny Rose and our dear Lucas Hicks. And they kind of helped me find my way and discover a community and get me my first job, my first place to live. And, yeah, I think— Wait, how
0: did you know—so you knew uh,
2: Lucas and Jenny and Thomas before you moved to Bellingham? I knew uh, Thomas and Jenny were kind of fast friends that I had only met recently when Lucas came to do a show at uh, McMinnan's Owl's Tavern, I think it's called. Oh, Owl's Den, sure. Owl's Den. I knew Lucas uh, back from the first year that I worked in Alaska, which I think was 2006. I was working in a sort of Gold Rush theme park, and the Gallus brothers came through there, and I met them. It was the first time I met Devin as well, and they played a show, and I ended up uh, sitting in with them at that point and then being asked to go join them for a show they did at the Pioneer Bar in Haynes. And this is a story that you can ask Devin about because he loves to tell and it probably changes every time. But that he, uh, uh, during the set break of that show, I'd sat down with him for a few songs on the first set. I went onto the parking lot and was just kind of talking to the people because I think it's important when you're in a new place to sort of talk to strangers and just, you know, learn about them, learn about the, the surrounding, the culture. And I ended up uh, smoking peyote, which is not something that you're supposed to do. But uh, that did not bode well for the free Jaeger that I had been drinking for the last 20 minutes as well. And that sort of cocktail sent me into a, a bit of a tailspin, if you will. And I ended up passing out in the women's restroom for some reason and Devin found me in there and he picked me up and took me back to the hotel. I woke up in the next day in bed next to him and the rest is history. We were friends after that. <laughs>
0: what so (laughs) why didn't Devin tell me that story when he was in here (laughs) I
2: don't (laughs) know maybe it just didn't come up organically
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well okay
2: and yeah that was uh, you know fast forward many years later when I see Lucas again after you know quite a quite a long time and we get to catch up and everything, and I'm kind of at the point where I'm feeling the need to do something different in a different town and feel like that Bellingham was calling me, and uh, he invited me to come up and stay for a while and kind of check out the area, and, yeah, it didn't take long for me to realize that there was there was something waiting for me here. I just didn't know what it was yet. Um,
0: you brought your trumpet, right? Yeah. You want to play us a tune? Uh, it's actually
2: just... Um, for display purposes, no. It's just it's just, just an empty case. <laughs>
0: This episode is brought to you by Irish and Folk Mondays at Boundary Bay Brewery. Every Monday, Jan Peters hosts a thriving Irish music session, followed by a stunning acoustic concert series, featuring local, regional, and nationally touring artists performing a wide variety of folk and traditional music. Listeners and players alike can enjoy the great selection of food and drink available in the Boundary Bay beer garden. Experience the age-old tradition of session playing with Bellingham's intergenerational Celtic music community, and revel in the world-class sounds of the feature performance. This month, Yon Songs Productions is proud to present Grass Blue from the Foothills of Mount Baker, The Dynamic Beauty of the Wandering Seas, Charlie Beck of Seattle's Squirrel Butter, together with Joe Fulton of the Tallboys, and Bellingham Treasures of Tunage, The Moving Hats. For showtimes and more, visit yonsongsproductions.com and follow Irish and Folk Mondays on Facebook. Irish and Folk Mondays at Boundary Bay Brewery, where the only boundaries are the beers. This episode is brought to you by Bellingham School of Music giving musicians of all ages the opportunity to learn, perform, and excel in their musical endeavors. Bellingham School of Music offers music lessons, performance opportunities, and professional rehearsal spaces with integrated recording studio technology. They have an incredible roster of 23 talented and engaging teachers and state-of-the-art facilities to serve the Whatcom County region. Stop in or visit Bellinghomeschoolofmusic.com today to schedule a free introductory lesson, inquire about rehearsal space rentals, or book a recording session. Bellingholm School of Music. Welcome home. So you joined the army mm-hmm. at age 23. Sounds about right specifically to play
2: in the 76th army band (laughs) yes yeah after an audition and uh in fort knox kentucky wait hold on you went to fort
0: knox to audition isn't fort knox where they keep all the money Mm -hmm. and you auditioned for so what does that look like i have a lot of questions around this (laughs) um do you sign the papers first and then they tell you you can be in the band or do you – uh, like, like how do you know that you actually get to be in the band before you sign up for the Army?
2: First you do the audition and then after the audition, if you pass it, then you do sort of a physical exam just to make sure your body can handle everything. And then you sign the papers and do the swearing in and everything and then you're off to boot camp just like everyone else.
0: So boot camp happens no matter what. It doesn't matter. You go through boot camp just like you're any soldier. Correct, and then you, you went to like, music school,
2: like army music school. Yeah, uh, that was where it's our everybody in the service has what's called a MOS, which is your military occupational specialty. So much of that I've forgot, which I'm very proud of. But yeah, you go to school for six months for your musical AIT, Advanced Individual Training, and there there's other musicians from the, from the Marines as well. And you just go to school and learn theory and stuff for six months and participate in small ensembles and learning drone ceremony and how to march and how to follow a marching, just the, you know, the sequences and everything.
0: Do you know what kind of music you're going to be playing or like what band you'll be in before that happens?
2: No. So after that, again, that was in, uh, that was in Norfolk, Virginia where the school is located and then you get your duty assignments. And with the band, I probably isn't like this with most people in the service, but you're you're offered a variety of assignments. For me, I was offered Korea, uh, Fort Gordon, which is in Georgia, or Germany. So it did not really take much planning to choose Germany. And then you're off. And then what do you do? Like, do you, Are you... <laughs> so you get there and, uh, you, you know, you find your unit and everything and then you get into the smaller ensembles, they had jazz combos and Latin combos and salsa and Western and all these different little bands, so you do those gigs sort of, you know, uh, together for private functions. A lot of them, when you're in Germany, you're mostly doing street parades and playing for tattoos, which uh, for people who aren't familiar with that, it's pretty much just a big parade of all different military bands from all over the world so you compete not really in those you just kind of present the the you know choreograph stuff that you learned of the four years i was in the RE band two and a half was uh, pretty much living the dream getting paid to travel i spent a fourth of july in cairo egypt doing a street parade before we went to the pyramids i've been all over europe and again that was just mostly Drunken street parades, spending hours at a time on a bus, going through different countries, just being treated like a rock star everywhere we went. And being paid more money for some reason when we went to a different country on top of the excellent pay that we were already getting.
0: Wait, you're getting treated like a rock star, but you're playing Glenn Miller tunes?
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a jazz musician's dream. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then it got to a certain point where it started becoming a lot more army and a lot less band. And so I I got out uh, for that, and other reasons. What do you mean? What shifted? What shifted was that we started doing a lot more, Joel, and ceremonies, started doing a lot more, uh, you know, learning about our the, the weapons and stuff, and just kind of doing more army stuff. Just not doing as many concerts, and not as many parades, and more cleaning of weapons, and learning about war, and just things where it Pretty much the summit of three months after I got out of the Army and my whole unit got deployed to Iraq.
0: I was going to ask, so you were in the Army from 99 to 2003, which means that about halfway through September 11th happened. Correct. And we then... were on a
2: beach at the time in England. We had just finished playing a, a show uh, in Weymouth, England, when that happened, and that's when things started to change. We were told that day that we were going to war and to just be prepared for it. That was obviously by someone in the unit who was a dunce and just trying to get people scared and just thinking about reality and what could happen um, because that wasn't a good time to say something like that, you know. But eventually that's what would happen. We started doing a lot more because when the Army goes to war, what happens is the band takes up their secondary job, which everyone in the service has. They have a f- first thing that they learn, which for us was a band, And then a second thing that they learned, which for us was military police, which basically it was just, you know, guarding an empty building and just learning about policies and and security stuff. So when the army goes to where the band is in charge of taking over where the military police were, so they guard the general's tent and, you know, just do administrative tasks and things of that nature. But they're always the first ones in because they have to play the soldiers in when they arrive. And the band is also there when there's a when there's a ceremony for a change of leadership. If there's a general stepping down and a new one coming in, the only time I ever had to do anything like that was uh, one time when we flew to Bosnia and did a, a parade there and a ceremony for a new general that was coming in. And the normal band that was would have done that was not available, so they sent us. And that was that was pretty terrifying because it was just being on this cargo plane and. Pretty much throwing up until I could sleep, and then being woken up at one point and being told to put on my flak jacket and my helmet because they were shooting up at the plane, and just things like that were just would not have been well for me, I think, if, if I would have stayed in for many reasons, but also because I don't think that I could. I'm not the kind of person that, that really wants to go to war. <laughs> so, and that explains why I'm so docile and just kind of keep to myself. For lack of confrontation <laughs> but yeah it could have been a lot worse than it was and I was very fortunate so I guess being lucky started long before I arrived in Bellingham it just seems far more pronounced now while I'm here
0: mm. uh, you've been known to carry your trumpet with you everywhere that's true why why do you bring your trumpet with you
2: everywhere that started uh A number of years ago, when I was still living in Germany, I had just gotten out of the 76 Army Band and ended up getting out and staying over there for a bit. And I went to this uh, city of Mainz, which is a really, you know, really accessible and really beautiful place that kind of had a lot of art and music going on. And I was uh, walking around the city and just stumbled down this alleyway that was open. And it seemed really beckoning and inviting and just sort of walked in through this open door, not really thinking about it. It Happened to be this club called the Coots. And inside there was a band setting up on stage for presumably a concert that evening. And you could kind of see through the the shadows that the bar wasn't really set up or anything. They were just doing their sound check and figuring things out. And on stage was a pretty well-known musician, uh, ambassador of funk, some might say, by the name of Maceo Parker, saxophone player.
0: Wait, hold on. So you, you're in Germany, you're wandering through a town, you decide to go into a random bar? Like you don't know that Maceo Parker is sitting on the stage?
2: No, no.
0: <laughs> and you happen to walk into a, a bar that has, where Maceo Parker and his band are setting up.
2: Yeah, I generally, when I'm in a, a new place, you know, walk around the city and then also just go through the alleys and sometimes just walk into a place that has a door open because I figure they're inviting you in. And it's worked out pretty well for me so far. That was the first celebrity uh, encounter. But, (laughs) Uh, yeah, he was in there and they were doing a a sound check for the show that night. And I was just sort of hanging out by the bar area and uh, did not have my turbo with me.
0: (laughs) Wait, hold on. Time out. Yeah. So you walk in, you realized that Maceo,
2: like you recognized that it was Maceo Parker? I recognized the name for sure. And? And then sort of recognized this this presence of a person that can only be Maceo. And so you're just like sitting at a yeah. closed bar <laughs> spying on a sound check? Well, again, the door was open, so okay. <laughs> it's kind of their own fault. But yeah, I was just sitting there hanging out, and I would come to find out that the horn player in the band had recently gotten sick, and so he didn't have a trumpet player for that evening. sort of be in his backing band or whatever, and that he was... Asking if there were any trump players in the audience who would like to come up and jam with him, not really as an audition, just sort of like to be there and (laughs) make this part of the concert happen. And I didn't have my trumpet with me just because I didn't think to take it with me when I had left. And that was sort of a moment of regret of saying, could I have had the chance to play with Maceo Parker? Would I have been horrible and nervous and probably just, you know, not been very good at it because of the anxiety most likely, but it would have been a, an education in a moment. And it was both of those things. It just wasn't with him. But ever since that point, I took it with me everywhere that I went until many years later. when I had, you know, a chance to go see him when he played at a Jazz Alley in Seattle. Yeah, And my buddy Tom Garcia from Hot House, saxophone player, told me about the show. And I told him this story and said, uh, you know, if you drive out there... If we can just kind of wait for a while after the show because i just want to meet maceo and tell him the story too and just see if he can have a moment with me to talk to him (laughs) because i didn't really know anything about him just the fact that he was old and still doing it because i think he's in his late 60s early 70s and just still out there touring hard just being a working musician and has all these people that he's played with it's just kind of made him sort of a funk legend and he still can do it, believe me. That concert was amazing. Like I couldn't believe that he was pulling all these stops out as the kind of caliber of musician in the age that he was. But, yeah, after the show, I waited around for a while and was able to tell uh, the Trumbull Players band the story. And he took me to Maceo's little area where he was hanging out. And he opened the door, and Macy was right there and said that he could talk to me for a minute. And he was just soaked to the bone and just kind of decompressing for the show, and I told him the story, and, and took a uh, game of trumpet pin, and took a picture of him holding my trumpet, and he enjoyed it. How did he react when you told him that you were in you were in the room and you didn't have your horn? He was sort of bewildered, and he also was sort of uh, kind of checking the dates and everything, and finding out what was going on in his life at that time, and if that what kind of tour they were on. He actually wanted to know all the facts of the story. And I was very nervous and anxious and just trying to get these words out, similar to this interview, and <laughs> just kind of going with it, the fact that we were just hanging out, just the two of us, and that he had given me this moment to, to dialogue with him and let me know that I really appreciated being able to share that story with him. And then he was totally down to just take a picture holding a, not only an instrument that wasn't his, but a trumpet of all things. As a saxophone player, that's probably going to be a little bit weird. I don't know.
0: I don't know. In that photo, it looks like he knows how to hold a trumpet pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, w- will you give us a copy of that photo to put on the website? Of course. Massio Parker holding your horn. Yeah. So your trumpet is very special to you, as far as I can tell.
2: It's the only instrument I've ever had. I own a few other trumpets, but I don't really play those things you know this is the only one that i've ever really used and it's taken a beating and has some you know things that are definitely wrong with it but who doesn't have scars and bruises after 20 years so
0: mm. and then horn like it's 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 sort of your um i feel like calling it your brand is cheapening but it's uh it's definitely like your it's your logo you know it's like like you make you make pins that have a uh, illustration of the horn, like complete with all of the little straps and doodads that make it special
2: mm-hmm. that you give to people that you collaborate with. Is that right? Yeah. People that I, to mark some sort of moment or friendship or relationship that has happened. People I work with, people that I've lived with, people I play music with or produce events with, any sort of thing that's just kind of like a handshake, but also a little something extra. So, and then I do events sometimes based on those pins like for my birthday uh, a couple years ago i did something where if you brought your pin into a different establishment and you got a free something or other so just to kind of recognize that those people matter to me and they're important and i appreciate them
0: is the how did you get the idea to do that like when when did you decide i'm going to make pins to give to my <laughs> friends and, and the folks that i come across in the world
2: I don't even – I think it just started – the the band that I was in in Portland, uh, Inspirational Beats, sort of my my first exposure to the swing dance scene was because of that group and just being able to have all these experiences together. We were just – That's Beats with two E's, right? You got it. Yeah, Beats like the – pre vegetable. And uh, we got to the point of getting together merch and just like trying to do those things that a band does to make a little supplemental cash at shows and stuff. And, you know – Pins were a big thing, and patches and all that. And I just uh, got the idea of maybe I can put my trumpet on the little pin and just hand them out at shows. And I didn't do that very long. I just pretty much immediately started hanging them out to just my friends and people I played music with. And one of my friends in Portland, a graphic designer, Kylie, was the first one to sort of make that image that hasn't changed at all to kind of be branded on this pen. And I'm close to uh, since, I think since... uh. August of 2015, based on my order history, I've given out almost 1000 So a lot of that was at Jamboree th- the few years I went to there. A lot of it was just around town in Bellingham. Some of it was in Portland as well, but all those are mean something to me. Mm. I've never given one to a stranger. I've only given them to somebody that I've had a moment with. So. Do you have like rules for the pen? Uh, it has to be... Like when I was doing my birthday thing and people found out about that, they're like, "Oh, cool! Can I have a pen?" I'm like, "You can't just get something for free. You have to, you know, we have to do something together, like create an experience." So that's kind of really my my only rule It has to be something that's tangible. That I can give that person the pen and then, you know, remember why I gave that to them to sort of mark something. And a lot of times, it's you know, obviously not. Doesn't resonate for the people as much as it does for me because it's like, oh, cool, thanks. We played like one song together or whatever, dude. Just, <laughs> <laughs> but it's still just, you know, that, that action and just kind of knowing that if I see someone wearing one of those, it's because I gave it to them directly. And I've had, uh hasn't happened that often, but, you know, two or three times someone will come up to me and, you know, see the trumpet pin if I happen to be wearing it. I say, oh, I saw one of my friends wearing those. And that's just, that means the world. So. <laughs> If I see someone that? down the street and it's on their backpack or something, or and we were at uh, the penitentiary and I didn't have any shrimp pins on me, I just felt this moment of like, this person's not going to even know how important this was if I just leave and don't even... Jennifer, the rec superintendent I've been working with for so many months, I just don't have anything to give her. It's just like, just say bye and that's it, you know? And so I asked uh, Mickey and Annie if they had any of their pins, and Annie almost gave me the one off her jacket. When I looked at it, it was just so, like, just faded and loved on. And just from being on her jacket and being on the road, it's like I stopped her before she had finished. Mm. So I'll probably mail one to that lady, but just I don't even care anymore at this point. You know, it just seems so weird now. Just, <laughs> that's why I like to hand them to people directly. It makes a difference. Yeah. It's such a cool thing.
0: I really... Um, I think... I think now that it's, at least in our community, that it's become a thing, like the Pace pin is a thing, <laughs> you know, It's it it uh, it doesn't feel weird, if you have a sense of what it is, you know?
2: Cool. I think it's
0: cool. It's really cool.
2: Well, a lot of people that you've already had in the show, that's why I'm so honored to be here, and I know that this is episode 13, which is kind of ironic, because I just feel so lucky, like all the things I've had to me since I moved here, I feel like I moved here to... You know, find this community, um, find the theme of my dreams, like this beautiful house and this life, and just it's all been really fortunate. I'm really thankful for it. This is, a uh, Portland was the longest I'd ever lived anywhere, which was five years. And prior to arriving in Bellingham, I just kind of felt like if I was in one place, things would get stagnant or I'd feel weird or not have a sense of, anything because I felt like my home was on the road and that's where I was the most comfortable just being in a place where the the four out ways are familiar and just this environment where I was forced into talking to people and learning what was happening and you know where I could go and sit in on a jam session or whatever and now I'm just just kind of soaking hell in and happier than I've ever been despite all the changes happening it just feels right you know
0: mm. you waited a long time to
2: find this sense of grounding yeah and I mean, Portland was really good to me. I left a, a full-time job there that, uh, hands down, the best boss I've ever had. She was my best friend. I was managing a, a little boutique hair salon when I was working down there like as a receptionist. And I had a, a band that was sort of this conduit for the swing dance community. We were doing all these amazing events together and doing shows at the Crystal Ballroom and on you know private yachts and taking school buses and filling them with booze and musicians and driving to a secret ballroom in South Canby, Oregon, and all these things were really amazing and very, you know, fulfilling. But I just felt a sense of, despite having all these friends and community, I was still kind of lonely at times. Mm. And I just felt the need to move somewhere else, just to kind of find what I was looking for. And see if I could keep things going. So I didn't... Portland still is a large part of my heart. I wasn't like, you know, this town doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I should just leave. It's Nothing is happening here. There were so many things happening and so many good things, but just didn't feel right. So, mm.
0: Have you had that feeling since you've been in Bellingham? Are there
2: moments when you think, like, maybe it's time to move on? Well, I've been here, uh, it'll be four years, November 1st, and it'll be two years since I've been together with my partner Kate, and I kind of just feel like that was the reason I moved up here was to find her. So I don't foresee going anywhere anytime soon. I know I'll be here for at least another year, because it seems like five years is the point, you know, but things are uh, kind of uh, in flux right now. I'm not sure what's next, but I feel positive about it, and I feel very fortunate for this life that's been discovered up here. It's all because of those you know, three people that that told me to come here and try and make something happen. And I'm living in a house that Lucas bought, so that just makes it even more storybook that I didn't even know about until after we had walked in and done the tour and decided that we wanted the place. Only then that I found out that he was a part owner, along with my... Buddy Nats, who's one of the first people I've befriended in this town, who would play music with. So, yeah, it's just uh, I think maybe being on the thirteenth episode of your show is very fitting. I feel really lucky. I think we're lucky to have you here, Pace.
0: Thanks. Cheers. So, you've been doing a lot of cool stuff. Do you have a? I mean, Hot House that chapter has closed. Do you have a sense of? you have another scheme in mind, what you want to do next?
2: I kind of f- have thought about maybe trying to do more producing things. Uh, when I was in Portland, I thats I had the band, which was you know, fulfilling, but I also was doing this whole producing thing and bringing in different artists to work with local artists and create these events for people and give them that exposure from outside scenes. I think that's very important, hothouses Last public show was at The Shakedown with Frog and Henry, a really brilliant band from New Orleans, which is a tour that I put together with them based on a tour that I did for Tuba Skinny, another brilliant band from New Orleans. Uh, I was fortunate to arrange their organ debut when they first played in Portland in 2015, shortly before I moved up here, and became friends with their washboard player, Robin. And he reached out when Frog and Henry were coming out here to do a tour, and the timing, just lining up with Hothouse's penitentiary visit and just sort of seemed like a really nice way to, you know, thank the community by giving them this incredible experience from another band and that's something that I'm really inspired by is trying to bring in people from outside of the scene to this town that is deserving of more music and more dance and just more art and education because I think far too many people my friends who live in Vancouver, B.C. or Seattle or Portland just view Bellingham as kind of like a place where you drive through and just look at the scenery. You don't really stop and soak in the people here. And maybe a part of that is why it makes it such a special place. Um, but I think it's also a place that could use a little bit more recognition like and the good kind of attention where bands actually book shows here because of the the scene that we have, you know. Mm. Pace, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the presence. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate being here and being invited and being part of this community. It's a lot.
0: All right. That about does it for this episode. Thanks again to Pace for sharing his time and his stories with us. As of this recording, he and Divine Dame Kate are train hopping across Switzerland. So to them, we say a bon voyage. Please remember to take a moment and visit our Patreon page to pledge your support for this program. That's patreon.com slash littlecitybigsound. This episode's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Our interviews are engineered and mixed by Andy Rick. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick, and our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the Bell Pod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. We'll leave you with a recording from an event that Pace put together back in his Portland days. All the way from New Orleans, here's Tuba Skinny with How Do They Do It That Way?